This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. China remains one of the most unique economies on the planet. It has seen uh, pretty significant growth in recent years, and you obviously have numerous companies that would like to enter that market and reach its 1.4 billion consumers. But many dynamics make that a hard process, seemingly the control by the government being one of them. Still, the success is something that you can find in that Chinese economy. A new book by Wharton professor Carl Ulrich and global fellow Lele Sang looks at some of the instances of success and failure within China from companies, foreign companies, trying to enter that market. The book is titled Winning in China, Eight Stories of Success and Failure in the World's Largest Economy. And Carl joins us right now. Carl, great to talk to you again. Hope you're well. Yeah, nice to be with you, Dan. So success or failure in China for foreign businesses coming into that marketplace really depends on what factors? Well, we argued that there are three fundamental factors that you've got to assess before you even think about entering, and those are, is there actually demand for the job that you do? Uh, do you, can you get legal access to the market? And then third, do you, do you bring the, the necessary assets or capabilities to actually win in the marketplace? And so you have at this point, and this has been the case now for a while, so many companies that believe that they are that they are perfect for that Chinese market, correct? Yeah, I think often people assume that if they've been successful in the U.S. market, that obviously everyone in the world wants what they're selling. Amazon has tried. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Carl. No, go ahead. I mean, Amazon is a, is a great example of that. And Amazon, in fact, has taken an attitude that there is the one best way to do things. And that one best way must be the best way everywhere on the planet. Yeah. Uh, they discovered to their dismay that, that it turned out not to work in China. So uh, is it I mean, you're looking at, at different companies here in, in this book, but are there more so sectors that are more available to companies to go into that marketplace rather than businesses themselves. And I, I mentioned earlier about Starbucks and their earnings coming out today in the fact that Starbucks, you know, has had a pretty good presence in China, uh, you know, over the last couple of years. Yeah, I mean, let's get one thing out of the way. I mean, you said in your lead in that government factors are important. Obviously, they're they're important, but I think they're probably overemphasized. There are only a very few industries that the Chinese government really heavily regulates, primarily related to uh, high technology and and industries like higher education. The industry I'm in uh, is also heavily regulated. Um, So there most industries in China are wide open to foreign competition. And so that's a, a myth, I say, it dispels a myth. But if you look at Starbucks, think about what Starbucks brings. It's in fact their Westernness that is one of the assets they bring. So it's the whole idea of the cafe culture uh, with its origins going way back you know, to Europe, really, and then its reinvention in the United States. And then it's that essence, that Westernness, that is, in fact, the distinctive advantage that Starbucks, Starbucks brings to China. And, and so in that case, it's their, for, their foreignness is an asset. But in many settings, your foreignness is of no relevance to the Chinese consumer, and you better bring something else. 
So if you can, take us through a couple of the companies that you mentioned in the book, uh, ones that have had success, but ones that maybe have not. Yeah, so uh, let me give you a, a, a couple of examples. So Norwegian Cruise Line is a super interesting example because in many ways they followed the, the playbook. There was demand for cruising, for, for uh, the, you know, taking cruises by the Chinese consumer. Um, they had uh, a great, you know, great capabilities of operating cruise lines. They had access to the market. In fact, the Chinese government encouraged cruise line operators and then they really tuned their product to what they thought the Chinese consumer wanted. So there was a lot of red and dragon themes and, and things they thought Chinese consumers wanted. Uh, but in fact, that backfired because in a, in a twist on the advice you would get to tailor your product to the Chinese consumer, it, it, what the Chinese consumer wanted was something very different. They wanted a, a, an American or European cruise experience. And so the Chineseness, the adaptation of their product actually backfired. So that's, that was, to me anyway, a super interesting example. You also bring up uh, the Italian luxury brand uh, Xenia and the success that it has had uh, over in China. Yeah, so that's an interesting example as well. I mean, to some extent, it's also, in that case, the the Italian brand, the notion that it is Italian and European that, that resonated. But in, in this case, it's, it, was, it was pretty interesting because they really targeted a very specific segment and demographic in, in uh, China, which, which they called the rich uncle, which is, you know, everyone has a rich uncle, is a middle-aged guy. And so they weren't trying necessarily to be hip. They were trying yeah. to target the rich uncle who really valued brand and to some extent con conspicuous consumption, but was not necessarily super fashion forward. And in fact, they got a huge boost, a huge lucky boost when Xi Jinping started uh, sporting the, the Chinese uncle uh, jacket. Uh, it wasn't actually the Xenia brand that he was sporting, but it was this you know black windbreaker that, that Xi Jinping wore around to try to be one of the people. And Xenia happened to have a luxury version of that, and it was Xi Jinping's uh, kind of stodgy windbreaker that actually propelled Xenia's, Xenia's fortunes. He was kind of a brand influencer where, where that was concerned, yeah. right? Exactly. Yeah. I, I think unwittingly. Uh, what do you hope that, that prospective businesses thinking about the Chinese market will be able to take away from, from, what, you've, uh, from what you've written here? Yeah, I think the, the the really biggest difference between China and the rest of the world is just the size of the market. So just to put things in perspective, I mean, the Chinese market is more than three times bigger than the U.S. I mean, think about that. It's vast. And so in in most cases, American companies, and not just Americans, yeah, let's say American, European, foreign country companies, any country other than India and China, the domestic competitor looks at foreign markets and says, okay, we've been successful at home. We can go be successful abroad. Right. But what you have to think about, if you're entering Italy, there's no Italian company who will rival you, be, you know, because of their domestic presence. They just aren't big enough in Italy. But if you go into China, I guarantee you there will be a startup and an entrepreneur with mountains of venture capital whose only goal in the universe is to dominate the Chinese market – 
And that market will be big enough to make a fantastically valuable business for that entrepreneur. That's what you're up against if you're a foreign company entering China. And that's really a unique situation. So you've got to go into China assuming that there will be a scrappy entrepreneur with huge amounts of capital, and you have to bring something to that party that will let you win against that kind of competition. Carl, thanks very much for your time. All the best with the book. Thanks so much, Dan. Nice to be with you. You got it, as always. Warren Professor Carl Ulrich, and again, the book is titled Winning in China, Eight Stories of Success and Failure in the World's Largest Economy. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.